Okay. All right. Why don't we uh, get started here? How is everyone? Okay. Yeah. The results on the exam looked uh, quite good. So average. Did you see what that was? And was it 94? It was in the 90s somewhere. I don't think it was as high as 94, but it was it was in the 90s, which is I think a little bit better than years prior to you. Maybe by like one or two points. Still, if you have concerns or questions and you've not reached out to me, feel free to do so. If you did really well, don't let your guard down. It's probably going to get a little more challenging. We're going to talk about opioids in the first part of today's class. And Kevin, who's been with us the past few weeks, is going to teach this um, content. He's one of our pharmacy residents, if you recall. And um, we've been watching him teach the rest of us in our department for the past several months, and he's actually quite good at it. So hopefully that carries over uh, into today. I, would, I wouldn't <laughs> preface it with that high of an expectation. Uh, <laughs> when he's done, we'll take a break, whenever that may be. All right. Thanks, Paul. Okay, so just to introduce myself, my name's Kevin. I'm one of the residents, as Paul had mentioned. Um, and he asked if I wanted to teach about opioid pharmacology, and so I uh, graciously said I would. Um, so I'll be covering opioid pharmacology with you guys. So for this first hour, we're going to cover opioids. And then one of my colleagues, Diane, who you may have seen, um, who was here prior to, um, to me showing up, will cover non-opioids, primarily acetaminophen and the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents. Okay, so these objectives are pretty common amongst a lot of the medication classes that you guys will be seeing throughout the rest of the semester. So we'll talk about um, common agents in the class. We'll look at adverse effects and therapeutic uses. Perhaps unique to the opioid class of medications is talking about various concepts related to opioid use and substance abuse. So without further ado, we'll get started. So. You may have heard of these three different concepts before, tolerance, physical dependence, and addiction. I think tolerance is probably one of those definitions that you may have covered in the first part of the semester. Is that, am I correct in saying that? Have you guys heard of tolerance before? Yeah. Okay, so what is tolerance? What do you think about when you think of tolerance to medications? You need more medications for yeah, so that's exactly what the concept of tolerance is. It's a, a state of physiological adaptation where a patient will need um, an increased amount of drug to maintain the same physiological effect. Another way of thinking about tolerance is if the patient is maintained on the same amount of drug, there is a diminished physiological effect. So then, what about physical dependence? I don't know if you guys have covered physical dependence as compared to tolerance, but what do you guys think that is? I think there's a definition in the, in the notes part that I sent, but, but in your own words, maybe, what, what would you consider physical dependence to be? You take away the substance, you have adverse side effects. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a pretty good way of thinking about physical dependence. Essentially, it's another type of physiological adaptation to a, to a particular class of drugs where if you take that drug away, then that patient may experience what are called withdrawal symptoms, or if the patient is given an antagonist to the drug that is in question. The final concept that's on this slide is addiction. So 
what do you guys think addiction is? And do you think addiction is the same as these other two concepts, tolerance and physical dependence? Yes, no, me? So not, not the same. So what makes addiction different than, say, physical dependence, for example? Um, there's, your life is falling apart, but you still do it. Yeah, that, that's one way to describe it. Anybody else have, like, any other thoughts? That's, a, that's one of the things. Yeah, so part of it is psychological in addition to being physiological. Mm -hmm. I think I read somewhere you spend a good amount of your time seeking out the, the drug or whatever um, to about. Right, so drug-seeking behaviors. Mm -hmm. uh, it's because it has a uh, psychological aspect that leads to impairment of some sort in the person's life or behavior. Like an impairment, yes. So some sort of... Um, Decrease in the amount of like res the patient's not able to meet their societal needs or the things that they have some sort of expectation to meet. So those are all great um, points about addiction. So it's it has a psychological component. Oftentimes, a patient's life or whoever may be suffering from addiction, uh, their life may not be going the way that they they uh, had intended it to be. It may be not desired, of course. It might have just come upon itself just from a bad decision, for example. It has a psychological component, as we mentioned, um, and it may uh, manifest as drug-seeking behaviors. So it's important to note that tolerance and physical dependence are things that we will expect in chronic opioid use or any use of like a drug that has abuse potential. Um, just because of a patient who has chronic pain is using um, a high dose of opioids frequently does not mean that they're necessarily addicted, although it can sometimes be a little hard to tell um, between the three, especially if a patient, for example, has been taking chronic opioids for a long time at high doses and is exhibiting some drug-seeking behavior. It may just be a result of them just not having their pain resolved, or it could just be a fact that um, because they're not given adequate pain medication, they're starting to exhibit or feel like they're having physical uh, withdrawal symptoms. So, all different definitions, but it can sometimes be hard to differentiate between them. But it's important to kind of know the difference in the nuances. Yes? Um, on your slides here, you have addiction, you have neurobiological disease. Can the disease be a distinction between the other two and so, yeah, so I think one of the definitions, so that definition came from a consensus statement from some of the, um, some of the uh, societies, like pain medicine, addiction medicine. It could, addiction does have like a neurobiological type of um, like disease state. Yeah, the way that it's defined, it's more of a disease rather than just um, like manifestations of physiological adaptation. I think that might be a good way to describe it. I think addiction, the way that they've uh, defined it, it's very like conceptual. It, they didn't really give like a hard, like this is what it is, but it's like this disease that is manifested by drug-seeking behaviors or failure to meet societal um, expectations, things like that. So it's not like, it's, it's kind of conceptual in a sense. Any other questions about these concepts? All right, so moving forward. So we know that this class of drugs is, has a lot of um, public health implica uh, implica 
implications. So we know that the opioid crisis is something that's been happening as of late for the last couple of years. I've just put a couple of statistics here, but um, the question that may be coming to your minds or the question that came up to my mind was, you know, how did we get here? How did we end up in this opioid epidemic, especially here in Massachusetts and the New England area? So there are a lot of different reasons that this had come about. One of the reasons was back in the 80s, we were mo mainly using opioids um, for <laughs> chronic like cancer pain, end of life type of pain. But then apparently there were some journal articles written in the 1980s that had relieved some of the fears about use of opioids as um, for chronic pain. And so the manufacturers of these drugs had caught on to some of these journal articles looking at this and started marketing these drugs to, to prescribers, which had increased their use. Um, and then along the years, the use of these prescription medications has increased. Um, and then we've come to find out that these do have addictive potential. Also related to this is the fact that a lot of illicit channels where these drugs can come from, for example, like um, heroin or or illicitly, like, con like, uh, like, what do you call it, like contraband coming in from different countries, those channels have become more efficient, and so it's becoming easier and cheaper to find these medications <coughs> on the black market, which has made things, uh, the situation worse. So uh, it's important for us as clinicians to kind of be aware of what's happening here um, and uh, know the difference between a patient who really requires these medications for chronic pain or if um, we're starting to notice like addictive potential drug-seeking behaviors and, and manage appropriately. Okay, so now we're going to go into the pharmacology of opioids. So there are three important opioid receptor families that are known in clinical medicine. Those are the mu opioid receptor, the kappa opioid receptor, and the delta opioid receptor. The most important one for clinical practice to know about is the mu opioid receptor. This one is the one that we think about when we think about opioids analgesic effects as well as some of the side effects that we are trying to avoid with this class of agents. How the opioids work is that they bind to opioid receptors and mimic the action of endogenous peptide neurotransmitters, including the endorphins, enkephalins, and dynorphins. So these endogenous peptide neurotransmitters are substances in our body that um, bind to the opioid receptors and by giving um, these other opioids that, that you may prescribe or if a patient is getting them illicitly, they will mimic the action of um, these neurotransmitters. Have you guys heard of something called like a runner's high? So. That's when, uh, after intense physical activity, a, patient, uh, a person may have release of endorphins and they'll bind to these uh, opioid receptors in our body. So in a, in a sense, they're kind of like our natural opioids that our body produces. Okay, so now we're gonna talk about opioid analgesic classifications. Um, the way that I've divided it up is in three ways. One of which is the degree of synthesis the second being chemical structure, and then the third being action on the opioid receptor, either as an agonist, a partial agonist, a mixed um, agonist and antagonist, 
or an antagonist. You guys have probably heard of agonist, partial, and antagonist, right? The mixed one is probably new. Probably haven't heard of that one as, as much. So what it means by a mixed um, action on the receptor is that because there are three opioid receptor families, a drug might have uh, one type of effect on one receptor and a different type of effect on another receptor. So we're going to see an example of this in the coming slide. Um, but just to illustrate the point. Okay, so agonists classified by synthesis. So we know that the natural agonists are morphine and codeine. These are the ones that have been derived from opium poppy, which has been used for hundreds if not thousands of years as an analgesic, as a sedative. And then there are semi-synthetic agents that have been um, brought to the lab and then medicinal chemists have, um, have done chemical modifications to those natural agonists to make them more potent. Um, and you can see some examples here, and you may have heard of these. The synthetic agonists are essentially completely lab-derived, so they don't have uh, a similarity to the natural or semi-synthetic agonists. And then if we look at the agents classified by structure, they're very similar to the previous cl classification by synthesis. It, makes, it kind of makes sense because um, if we know that the natural agonists are morphine and codeine, if we do a small or slight chemical modification to those, they will still maintain the same uh, structure. The clinical implica uh, implication of, of this is that Patients who have um, allergy to one of these medications will have a higher risk of cross-sensitivity with drugs in the same chemical family compared to those that are structurally dissimilar. So, for example, let's say a patient says they have an allergy to codeine, for example. So, which one do you think, which of the following would you think would lead to a higher risk of cross-sensitivity. Um, hydrocodone or meperidine? So yes, so hydrocodone would likely have a higher risk of cross-sensitivity if the patient had an allergy to codeine because the structures are similar. Okay, so here's just a, uh, a slide to, to show what the chemical structures look like. I think the thing to appreciate here is that naloxone, which is an opioid antagonist, it's what we use for opioid emergencies, looks so very similar to morphine. And I think one of the things that I appreciated when I was in school and learned about like medicinal chemistry and pharmacology was just very slight modifications to a drug can have a, a drastic effect on how it interacts with the receptor. So I think that's just one thing to appreciate here, just how structurally similar the two agents are, but how yet one is an agonist and one is a complete antagonist. And then here you can just see some of the other structures look quite different. Okay, speaking of receptor actions, here are the opioids classified by their action on the receptor. You'll see the agonist on the left-hand side, and then the partial agonist, buprenorphine. So and then this mixed agonist antagonist, nalbufine. So we talked about what a mixed agonist antagonist is. So 
Nalbuthine is an example of a, a uh, opioid that has a strong agonist activity on the kappa receptor, kappa opioid receptor, and an antagonist effect on the mu opioid receptor. We don't use this agent very commonly in clinical practice, so I only provide it here just as an example of what a mixed agonist antagonist is. And then we know about the antagonist naloxone as well as a drug called naltrexone. Okay, so next we're going to talk about pharmacodynamic effects. You'll notice between this slide and the next slide, they're pretty similar. And the reason is, you know, the effects that we would imagine opioids to exhibit can, cause, can provide therapeutic effects as well as toxic ones or things that we want versus things that we don't want. So analgesia is the first one on the list. This is the effect that we're most commonly interested in when using opioids. Opioids reduce the pain threshold in the CNS, as well as um, alter the way that our body perceives pain. Euphoria is the next one on the list. So we know that patients or, or folks who use these drugs illicitly um, may experience a high when using these medications, especially if given parenterally and rapidly. Respiratory depression is another side effect or a pharmacodynamic effect. You can see that I kind of mixed the two up because they're so similar. So we know that in using opioids, we can expect that um, respiratory depression can occur. This occurs because opioids affect the respiratory center in our brain and reduce its sensitivity to carbon dioxide. So we know that carbon dioxide is a byproduct of our um, metabolism. And so if our body detects that we have carbon dioxide, it will uh, prompt us to breathe in and out. But by increasing the sensitivity, or I guess decreasing the sensitivity to carbon dioxide, um, then our body isn't as readily, it doesn't readily um, take on that breathing uh, action, let's say. Sedation is another pharmacodynamic effect of opioids. This is more commonly seen with um, those morphine derivatives <coughs> rather than like synthetics, but it is something that does occur. Opioids can decrease the cough reflex, and this is important for one of the drugs that we're going to take a look at. We don't usually use um, opioids for cough suppression. It was probably more something that they used back in the day until we found some better agents that didn't have as high of abuse potential. Meiosis is the next pharmacodynamic effect. Do you guys know what meiosis is? It's like, it's not like meiosis like the cells. Not like meiosis like the cells. Constriction, yep. It's constriction of the peoples. So one of the things that you may have heard about with an opioid overdose is that patients will have pinpoint pupils. So that's, that's where that comes from. What about emesis? What is that? Bonding. Bonding. Okay, that makes sense. All right, you guys know that one? So opioids uh, interact with the chemoreceptor uh, trigger zone in the brain, and that will stimulate uh, nausea and vomiting. And then the last one I put here was GI tract slowing. So opioids can interact with our peripheral nervous system and slow down the uh, slow down intestinal transit. Okay, so our adverse effects, very much connected to the pharmacodynamics that we saw. 
or pharmacodynamics that I, that I <coughs> mentioned. So nausea and vomiting, expected. Sedation, constipation, because GI tract is slowed, we would expect that patients will uh, experience constipation when using these drugs. Respiratory depression, and then urinary uh, retention. I didn't include that in the pharmacodynamic effects, but it does uh, indeed cause re urinary retention by um, clamping down the sphincter uh, for the bladder. Okay, so I've included this table to show some of the effects um, of opioids that are subject to tolerance. You'll notice that most of the opioids' pharmacodynamic effects are subject to a high degree of tolerance. So that includes analgesia as well as some of the side effects that um, are sort of unwanted, including sedation, respiratory depression, things like that, nausea, vomiting. Um, although I guess it's better that we don't want nausea and vomiting, so that's probably a good thing. The key takeaway from this slide is, one, most of the effects of opioids are subject to tolerance. However, the second big point here is that constipation is not subject to tolerance developing. So what does that mean if we are starting an opioid for a patient? What else should they receive if they're getting an opioid prescription? So they should get some sort of bowel regimen, right? So something like docusate and senna or something similar. Do you guys, have you guys gone over like um, bowel regimen constipation meds yet? Okay, so have you guys heard of senna? Senna. Um, this is the extent that I'm going to use the board. Uh, what about um, like Miralax? Yeah. A lot of these things you can get over the counter, but you can all, so you could tell your patient, oh, you can just get these things over the counter, um, or you can provide a prescription. But it's a very important that patients who are started on opioids, particularly if they're on a high dose of opioid, um, to anticipate that they'll experience constipation. This is an effect that's not subject to tolerance. Any questions up to this point before we go on to the individual agents? Okay, hopefully that's a good sign. Okay, so next we're going to talk about each of the agents, uh, each of the common types of opioid agents, and some of their unique features. Um, as you guys are studying this material, it might be best to learn the pharmacodynamics and side effects as a whole, as a class, and then focus on some of the unique features. All of these will um, have like those analgesic effects, respiratory depression, sedation, nausea, vomiting. Those are pretty common among the class, although there are some slight nuances, and then we're going to cover these nuances now. So morphine is our prototypical opioid agonist. It's available in a number of different formulations, and it has extensive first-pass metabolism. Do you guys remember what that is? So, so what does that entail? Anyone want to volunteer their knowledge from the previous exam? Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's metabolized in the liver a lot before it goes into the circulation? Yeah, so that's a great answer. So when this drug is taken enterally by mouth, it undergoes metabolism in the liver before it makes its way into the systemic circulation. And so a good amount of that um, won't even meet or hit the systemic circulation as a result of this first pass metabolism. But the drug that is 
um, the drug that does make its way into the systemic circulation, there's two clinically important metabolites that um, you guys should be aware of with morphine, both by glucuronidation. The first is morphine-3-glucuronide. It has no analgesic effect, but it, has, uh, it exhibits neurotoxicity. So what we're concerned about here is the risk of seizures. The morphine-6-glucuronide is the other clinically important metabolite. And this one is two to four times more potent than morphine. Knowing that these two metabolites are renally cleared, in what patient population should we avoid using morphine? Or should we be careful in using morphine? Yeah, so renal disease, renal impairment. We know that this drug causes histamine release, more so than the other agents. So the things that you may experience if using this drug include urticaria, sweating, flushing, pruritus. And then with high doses of this drug, um, patients may experience hypotension and bradycardia. Most of the time, uh, the opioid agents don't have significant effects on the cardiovascular system, but at high doses, they may have some effect. Morphine is one of those drugs that may have that effect at high doses. But normally not, not a big concern. Codeine is the next drug that we're going to take a look at. Compared to a lot of the other agents that we're talking about, codeine is a low potency agonist. It does not have as much action on the opioid receptor. It doesn't cause as much analgesia. It's available by mouth only, and it's most often used as an antitussive. We know that opioids uh, depress the cough reflex, and we take advantage of that uh, property with codeine. But perhaps the most important point to know about codeine is that it's metabolized by 2D6 to morphine. Codeine by itself doesn't have much uh, pharmacodynamic uh, activity, but it gets metabolized in the liver to 2D6 to morphine. So what do we call this type of uh, medication if it doesn't have much activity to begin with, but it gets metabolized? A prodrug, great. So I think you guys did deserve the 90, right, on that other exam? So the clinical implementation uh, implication of this is that patients may have genetic polymorphisms of their 2D6 enzyme, and depending on how fast or slow that um, that uh, enzyme can can metabolize the drug, it can dramatically impact the amount of morphine that gets uh, that the codeine gets transformed into. So let's take a look at this question to solidify the point. So in this scenario, a patient's given a prescription for Tylenol number three. This patient is known to have a low activity variant of the 2D6 gene. In other words, they are a poor metabolizer of drugs that go through this enzyme pathway. Compared to a patient with a normal 2D6 activity, what would we expect codeine's clinical effect to be? Would we expect it to be increased, decreased, or not affected? Decreased. Decrease. Okay, I think that was pretty unanimous. So we would expect codeine's clinical effect to be decreased because we know that um, their 2D6 gene enzyme, or their gene that codes for the enzyme, is low activity. So we would expect more codeine to remain and less of it being transformed into morphine. Okay. okay. So the next couple of drugs that we're going to talk about are also um, opioid agonists. There aren't too many unique things about them. 
So, so we won't cover too many things about them, other than that you should be aware that the name of the name, oxycodone is a pretty commonly used medication in patient and outpatient. It's available by mouth only. It is often combined with acetaminophen or Tylenol in a product called Percocet, and it's available in short and long-acting forms. Hydromorphone is another commonly used agent. Its brand name is called Dilaudid. It's available IV and PO, and it's one of those semi-synthetic analogs derived from morphine, and it's uh, quite a bit more potent than morphine. It also does accumulate into active metabolites, but less so than morphine. So this is not as much of a clinical concern as much as um, with morphine. So maybe a slightly better option in patients who have renal impairment. Hydrocodone is a semi-synthetic analog of codeine. You can kind of notice with the, that, maybe this is where I'm going to use the board. So you'll know that um, the phenantrine class of drugs, the ones that are derived from morphine and codeine, they, all of these drugs have either morph in their name or code in their name. I think the one exception of this is buprenorphine, which has north in its name. So this is kind of a way you can tell um, if the drug is in a similar class or a chemi similar chemical structure. Okay, so where was I? Hydrocodone, semi-synthetic analog of codeine. It's available as PO only, and it's often, or the immediate formulation, uh, immediate release formulation is always in combination with acetaminophen. I don't believe there's a immediate release um, only like solo agent for hydrocodone. Although non-combination ER products are available. Okay, fentanyl is the next agent we're gonna talk about. This is a synthetic opioid and it's much more potent than morphine. It comes in many different dosage forms. I've only included a couple here, but um, these include an oral lozenge, a sublingual spray, the patch for chronic pain, and then an injection or an injectable form. So this is primarily used either in the ICU where um, it's used as a continuous infusion or if used as a bolus dose, or it's used for chronic pain management. And patients must be opioid tolerant before they're prescribed this medication. Usually what will happen is the patient will have a long-acting opioid, and then they'll use fentanyl in one of these dosage forms such, such as the sublingual spray or the, uh, the law the lollipop, and use that for breakthrough pain, often in our cancer patients. <clears throat> so methadone is the next drug we're going to talk about. So the unique things about methadone are that it can prolong the QT interval and increase the risk of serotonin syndrome. And it's typically used for chronic pain and opioid maintenance. We have to take take care when we're um, starting this drug in, an, in a patient because of its unique pharmacodynamic profile, or pharmacokinetic profile, rather. Methadone exhibits a long and variable half-life. It starts from between maybe 15 to 60 hours, but it can extend to 150 hours. The reason why it has such a variable half-life is because of genetic polymorphisms, because methadone gets metabolized by a, a multiple uh, a multitude of CYP enzymes, 
as well as drug-drug interactions that can impact those enzyme systems. And so it's not very predictable how long this half-life will be. And as a result, it can be hard to tell when a patient has uh, reached steady state of the drug and will require a higher dose of the drug. So one thing that can occur if a clinician isn't aware about how long this half-life is, is that a patient may be started on, um, let's say, 10 milligrams of methadone for their pain. And then the next day or the day after the patient still complains of pain, the prescriber increases the dose to 20. And then the patient comes back, they're still uh, complaining of pain. Then it'll go up to 30, and then 40, and then by the week, by the end of the week, then that patient has gotten too high of a dose or been prescribed too high of a dose of methadone, and so we would expect higher risk of adverse effects. So we, because it has such a long half-life, remember that the steady state of this drug takes several days to weeks um, for it to reach steady state. Does that make sense? Okay. So be aware of the long half-life. Takes a while for it to achieve steady state. Yeah, so I think, are you talking about it in relation to opioid maintenance? Like, maybe, but I, th I thought it was like, yeah, so you could, so a patient who is trying to, say, detox off, um, after being opioid dependent, they may find themselves going to a methadone clinic, receiving a daily methadone dose, and then depending on the strategy in which um, the patient and the clinician decide you know, what will be the best approach for the patient, either they'll be maintained on a certain dose of methadone or they may find themselves titrating down so that they can get off of opioids in general. The way you can usually tell if the drug is used for chronic pain versus maintenance or like detox is the way it's dosed. So normally for pain, it might be dosed maybe three times a day, for example. For opioid maintenance, it's usually once a day. If you're gonna be using this on a patient with chronic pain, would you need to give them some form of like a loading dose of something to help with the pain while it's reaching steady state? Yeah, so it that's a great question. I think the answer to that is it's complicated and it probably requires some sort of pain specialist to, to help with the titration between the two agents. So if we're converting from one agent to another, um, one of the unique things about methadone too that I haven't highlighted here but you may notice on the later slides is that the conversion between methadone and a different agent isn't linear. So that means that converting from say oxycodone to hydrocodone is more straightforward. It's kind of a one-to-one -one ratio, or not a one-to-one -one ratio, but the ratio that um, you use to convert is linear. Whereas with this, the more um, opioid that the patient has been receiving, the, um, I think it's the less methadone that they actually need. Um, it depends on the, the, the ratio in which um, it gets converted based on how much opioid they've already been taking. I hope that didn't confuse it more than it than I did, but I hope that answered your question. It it's complicated. It depends. It's always it's always the best answer. <laughs> okay. So tramadol is the next 
uh, opioid that we'll be talking about. It's an opioid receptor agonist, as well as has activity on uh, serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake. So with this drug, what's important to know is that it can increase the risk of seizures as well as serotonin syndrome. And so there's drug-drug interactions with things like SSRIs, MAOIs, tricyclic antidepressants. Um, one question I had was, do you guys know what those are? Have you guys gone through those yet? I don't know. I, I like put these in the slides thinking like, oh, you guys know what an SSRI is. But things, so, things like antidepressants. Um, often work by increasing serotonin and because this also has an effect by inhibiting reuptake of serotonin this can also increase serotonin so there's a risk for serotonin syndrome okay next one is meparidine this one is not that often used in clinical practice but where it is used is sometimes for rigors and post anesthetic shivering there isn't a really great explanation for why it helps with rigors or shivering, but people have found it helps, and so we use it for that. It has a shorter duration of action than morphine. It exhibits anti-muscarinic effects. So instead of uh, pinpoint pupils, you may see dilated pupils, for example. One of the important things to know about meparidine is that it has an active metabolite normeparidine. This is renally cleared, and it has a risk for neurotoxicity. It also carries a risk for serotonin syndrome. And as a result of all of these uh, clinical disadvantages, it's really avoided in our renal hepatic impairment in the elderly, and it's not used for chronic pain management. But you may see it in clinical practice, um, maybe after surgery or something like that. Okay. So the next drug we're going to cover is buprenorphine, which is a partial agonist, and it's often used for opioid dependence. Um, so I just wanted to take a slight um, shift here and talk about opioid withdrawal because um, we're trying to avoid these symptoms with um, maintaining somebody on something like buprenorphine. So like we talked about before, if a patient is physically dependent on a drug, um, abruptly stopping that drug or administering an antagonist will result in withdrawal symptoms. What are those symptoms? So those include anxiety and tremors, restlessness, sweating, chills, um, medriasis, hypertension, tachycardia, diarrhea. Some of these are, are symptoms that you would expect are almost the opposite of what you would expect when giving an opioid, right? So things like madriasis or diarrhea, those are opposite of the effects that we would see with opioids. So it's so that might be a way you can think about it. Patients who, instead of euphoria, they might have anxiety and tremors. So that might be a good way to remember it if, you, if, if that helps. Okay, so buprenorphine. This is a mu... Uh, opioid receptor partial agonist, so it doesn't have the full activity of some of our full agonists that we looked at. doesn't create that sort of high that a lot of drug-seeking individuals are looking for. And like I mentioned, it's often used for opioid dependence, and it comes in various uh, formulations, including a sublingual, transdermal, and implant, and most recently a sub, uh, subcutaneous injection. 
Have you guys heard of Suboxone? It's the formulation of buprenorphine with naloxone and antagonist. Do you guys know why naloxone is added to the formulation? I think if you were able to mix it and make it IV, then the naloxone would activate. Exactly. So the drug manufacturers were pretty smart about this thinking because they had found out that patients who were just getting buprenorphine or um, drug-seeking individuals who had found their way to getting buprenorphine, they were able to sort of crush the tablets or manipulate the films in such a way that they could administer this IV, um, and so potentially getting that high that they were looking for. So what the manufacturers did was they combined the drug with naloxone, which is an antagonist. Normally when we give naloxone orally or through the oral route, it does not get absorbed systemically. So a patient who is taking this legitimately will not experience those antagonist effects. But once a, a drug-seeking individual might manipulate that formulation and try to give it IV, then they'll experience the, the withdrawal effects that, they'll, that you might see with an antagonist, like naloxone. Okay, so we're gonna talk about those opioid antagonists. Naloxone, as we probably all know, is used as a treatment for opioid overdose. It comes in various formulations. IV is used in the hospital. It comes in an IM or sub-Q uh, injectable called Evzio. This one's actually pretty cool. I think I, I, I haven't seen it in clinical practice, but I did see it in one of my labs while I was in school. It's like one of those talking uh, injectables. It's kind of like, um, they had like an, an epinephrine auto-injector that, that had been out like very shortly before it got like recalled. But it, it basically talked to you. So you would like open the cover and then the thing would talk to you and say like what you need to do. Like pull the extra cover off and then find the thigh and then just put it in, hold it in, and then it, it would guide you through the steps. And it was really helpful because you know you're in such a tense situation if you find a guy or an individual down. Um, and so I thought it, it would have been a cool uh, concept. I think it does exist, but um, the most common thing that we see is intranasal Narcan. That's probably the most commonly uh, known agent that we have, or brand name that we know about and the public knows about. Its half-life is 30 to 80 minutes. And so the impl implication of that is that naloxone's duration of action is often shorter than the duration of action of the opioid that the patient may have administered or ingested. So what that means is if a patient has had an opioid overdose and we give them naloxone and the patient recovers from that overdose, after naloxone's effect diminishes, that patient might go back into overdose because this doesn't last as long as the opioids that they may have ingested or administered. Does that make sense? So this is a, a reason why we don't just let the person kind of go about their day after getting a a dose of naloxone. We make sure that they go to the ER, receive additional care because they could go back into withdrawal. Naltrexone is the next opioid antagonist. It's probably not as well known as naloxone and it has a longer half-life than it. It's often used for um, substance dependence. So for example, the oral formulation is used to treat alcoholism. It's called Revia. And then there's an IM uh, injection for alcohol and opioid dependence. It's called Vivitrol. I think if I've been here for a couple years and I saw some like 
some advertisements on the T for it for, for a short amount of time. So it's used for um, opioid and alcohol dependence. Okay, so wrapping up here. Here are some peripherally acting agents that do not cross into this, the central nervous system. So we would not expect um, analgesia or, um, or other side effects associated with the agonists that we talked about. But they have some unique um, therapeutic uses as a result of only acting in the peripheral nervous system. One of these is loperamide. It's used for the treatment of diarrhea. Do you guys know what the brand name of loperamide is? You'll find it over the counter. Amodium. Yeah. So, so it, so you can commonly find it on like pharmacy shelves, and apparently, people have known that like when you use this drug in regular doses. For the treatment of diarrhea, it will not cause any sort of um, analgesic or euphoric effect. Although people have found later on that um, ingesting high doses of this, you, there may be some potential. And so um, if a patient takes like a whole bottle of these, then, then you might see some euphoria. There might be some crossover, but um, <coughs> lots of constipation if you're taking that much uh, of <laughs> Okay. So on the complete opposite spectrum is uh, a drug called methylnaltrexone. So you'll notice the name says naltrexone in it, so antagonist. They added a methyl group so it doesn't cross into the CNS. This is used for the treatment of opioid-induced constipation. It's available sub-Q and oral, and it requires a, no a dose adjustment in renal dysfunction. Pretty much all you need to know about it. We tend to, at least on the inpatient side, we tend to use this more as a last line type of thing after all our interventions in trying to establish a really thorough bowel regimen are used, then we might turn to this agent. And it's pretty effective if patients have been on a large amount of uh, opioids and um, still haven't had a bowel movement. For the sake of com completeness, I've included another antagonist. Its name is naloxagol. Um, I haven't seen it much in clinical practice, but it's also used for uh, opioid-induced constipation as an oral tablet. Okay, so to wrap things up, we'll talk about some general considerations when using these agents. So you may be asking, what's the effective dose for opioids? And that is the lowest dose that provides adequate pain relief. If you come up with a clinical scenario where a patient is on a opioid regimen and they are saying that their pain just isn't controlled throughout the time that they're using the drug, that may be an indication to increase the dose. If the, pain, if the patient is expressing that their pain regimen is pretty adequate in terms of providing analgesia, but then it just starts to wear off at the end, that might be an indication to increase the frequency. Why would we not increase the dose in that instance? Yeah, so I guess this is another portion where I'll use the board. So if you guys remember, um, let's say that um, the effect of the drug, it gets administered. Let's say this is like drug level or effect. Um, effect and this is like time. So let's say that patient um, needed to have 
this threshold in terms of their pain being relieved. If we gave, and this is the current state of the drug, so, so then, so then there's this small portion here where the patient isn't covered. They're not having adequate pain relief. If we were to increase the dose of the drug, what would happen is they'll get, they'll get a higher peak, something like that, and then they'll end up still not having the adequate um, pain relief at the end of their uh, dosing frequency. At the same time, they may experience higher uh, risk of side effects. So the key here is to consider increasing the frequency of the drug. So not necessarily increasing the dose, but just increasing the frequency so that the patient can, uh, whoops, increasing the frequency so that the patient is adequately covered for the time that they're using the drug. Okay, hope that was okay. All right, when would we consider switching these agents? So you might consider converting between the agents if a dose increase occurs without any adequate pain relief. If the patient experiences intolerable side effects, that might be another indication to switch an agent. Oftentimes, we'll have patients come in to the hospital and they may have an intolerance to, say, morphine. But then they take um, oxycodone at home and they're perfectly fine with oxycodone. Don't know why. Uh, oftentimes it's put as an allergy, it's really not an allergy, it's more of an intolerance, but that might be an indication to switch. If the patient experiences intolerable side effects, they may find that another agent might be better for them. The other uh, consideration is if it's unaffordable or if there's something that the formulary will cover versus another agent that it might not cover anymore. Alright, and then opioid conversion. So. One of the things that you guys need to consider if we were converting a patient from one opioid to another is um, the phenomenon known as incomplete cross-tolerance. So we know that in the beginning of our discussion, we talked about tolerance and how it is a diminished effect of a drug over time at, at the same dose. One of the things to know is that if we, that degree of tolerance is specific to that drug and may not fully um, be the same as if we switch to another drug in the same class. So for example, let's say that a patient is maintained on, say, like um, morphine 30 milligrams, for example, and they develop a certain degree of tolerance to that 30 milligrams of morphine. If we were to switch that patient to a different opioid, they would have a, a slightly, they would have less tolerance built up for that different opioid than they would with morphine. Does that make sense? The tolerance between the two agents is not totally the same. Even if you switch them to a similar family? Yes, okay. yep. It's, the tolerance is specific to the drug. And it's not all, it doesn't matter if it's in the same family, different family, although that may have some role. Um, okay. So here's an example of an equal analgesic dose chart. 
there actually aren't that many studies that have looked at equal like ratios between agents. These were studies that have been conducted way long ago in healthy individuals, and then they just ended up making this type of chart that has just stuck with us for many years, and we use it for our conversions. Um, but you'll notice that here are just a few examples with enteral and parenteral formulations. Like we talked about a little earlier in, in our discussion, methadone, the potency changes with the dose, and I didn't even want to include like how we would consider uh, adjust like changing because the the ratios aren't linear like this. All right, so how do we? convert between opioids. I won't have you guys trying to pull out your calculators for the exam. Just know, um, just know the steps and the general concept behind how to convert. So let's say a patient had been on a chronic regimen. So the first thing we would do is identify the 24-hour dose requirement. So we would add up all the opioid that the patient has received over a 24-hour period, including the scheduled doses and any sort of breakthrough pain medication that they might use. We would use a table, like the example that we had here, to calculate or determine the 24-hour dose of the new drug and decrease that by 25 to 50%. This decrease of 25 to 50% would account for incomplete cross-tolerance that may occur. Once we get that total, we would divide that total dose into an appropriate interval, so the frequency of which we would use that new drug. And then if we're using a long-acting formulation, we would want to provide a breakthrough pain medication to be used as needed. Usually that's 5 to 15% of the total daily dose. All right, so I just have two questions that we can go through. Um, so ES is a 43-year-old female. She has hyperlipidemia, history of seizures and chronic back pain, been using ibuprofen around the clock, hasn't been working very well, and so you decide to trial her with an opioid for her pain. She has not used an opioid medication in the past. Which one would be the most appropriate option to start with? Would it be fentanyl, tramadol, Hydrocodone, acetaminophen, or buprenorphine, naloxone? C. Anybody want A, B, D? Okay, it sounds like most people had said C, or too nervous to say C, or any of the other options. So why would fentanyl not be a good option to start with? So one, it's very strong. I heard some other... Yeah, so we would only use fentanyl if the patient has been opioid tolerant. If they've already been using opioids, we would use um, then we could consider fentanyl. But if, if a patient is opioid naive, they haven't used opioids before, then fentanyl would not be an appropriate option to start. What about tramadol? Why would we not use tramadol in this patient? Yeah, so this patient has a history of seizures, and so we would try to avoid using tramadol because that can increase all right, so we talked about hydrocodone and acetaminophen being an appropriate option, or maybe just it's the option that works compared to all the others. And then D, buprenorphine naloxone. So why would we not use this one? So 
what do we use buprenorphine naloxone for usually? For our opioid dependence. So we wouldn't usually use something like this for pain. It's not indicated for pain. Um, she hasn't even started an opioid, so we wouldn't consider her opioid dependent. All right, so C would be the correct answer here. All right, this is the last question. So you have a gentleman who comes to the clinic for routine follow-up, long history of osteoarthritis, and is being managed on oxycodone 10 every six hours. So the regimen's been working in the past, but it's been recently becoming less effective, and he's been complaining of a six out of 10 on the pain scale. So which of the following statements is incorrect? A, he may have developed decreased uh, tolerance to oxycodone. B, increasing his oxycodone dose may help with his pain. C, adding acetaminophen to his pain regimen might better relieve his pain. Or D, in addition to his oxycodone prescription, he should also be prescribed intranasal naloxone. Who thinks it is D? as incorrect. Incorrect. Anybody What about C? B? And then A. Okay. So a lot of hands for A. Maybe this side not as much for A. Um, which of the following statements is incorrect? So what would we not think is the correct answer? So, so A is the is the answer for this question. So in, so remember here that um, it looks like in this scenario that this patient has been on this regimen, hasn't been being as effective for his pain. So in a sense, we might actually consider this patient may have, maybe have developing increased tolerance instead of decreased tolerance. It could also be um, just a matter that his, his osteoarthritis has just gotten worse. It can be hard to tell between either uh, tolerance being developed or it's just a matter of the condition getting worse, right? But it may have developed. Uh, if anything, it may have developed increased tolerance, not decreased tolerance. B and C are pretty similar. If we increase the dose of oxycodone or add another analgesic, that might help relieve his pain. Those, um, those are true. And then D is in addition to his oxycodone prescription, he should be prescribed intranasal loxone. This is a pretty generally true statement. If a patient is on um, chronic opioids, it may be reasonable to give that patient a prescription of intranasal naloxone. But here in Massachusetts, we don't even need to give a prescription for intranasal naloxone. Patients, anyone can really just go up to the pharmacy and ask to have it, um, and then the pharmacy can dispense it based on, I think it's called a collaborative agreement, or like one of those agreements where of a doctor, they don't need to get a prescription to get naloxone. Okay, so that's the end of it. Uh, what questions do you guys have about this topic? I was curious about um, the effect on the bladder sphincter. Because, I mean, we were learning about stimulus effect on the bladder sphincter and uh, mm -hmm. how that creates the fluid uh, tension. Yeah. Uh, was that specific to like the tramadol and femoral because they are at risk of serotonin syndrome or is that for all of them and how did that sort of work? So the question is how how does the urinary retention or uh, like the bladder sphincter 
constriction occur? Does it occur with all opioids, or is it just specific to, say, like the serotonergic or anti-muscarinic type of agents? It's generally a class effect, although we don't really think about it too much. Like I don't, I don't think about it too much in terms of my clinical practice. But I don't know if Paul or 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 Caitlin might have better experience with seeing uh, urinary retention with those agents. Um, it's just one of the side effects that might occur with with all of them. Yes. Paul gives the nod <laughs> and says yes. <laughs> so I think that's probably all that we know about it. But. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't highlight it just because it's in clinical practice on the day to day. We don't really think about it too much, um, but just for completeness' sake. Yes. Um, this might be over what we like need to know, but how do you dose the naloxone in the hospital? Like, do you start with um, like a certain rate and then titrate down, or depending on symptoms? Um, the way that I've usually seen it is that um, we get like a vial of. Are you talking about like the IV formulation or? So normally it comes in, I believe, a 400 microgram vial, and then you dilute it, and then what happens is the clinician will deliver um, a small portion of that, usually like 80 micrograms at once, and then they'll wait to see an effect. If it doesn't have an effect, then they'll administer another 80 micrograms. Um, I haven't seen it being done, so that's, that's from my perspective as one who's verifying that, that order, that's what I see on my end. Um, I don't know if Caitlin has anything to add on that end. Caitlin's one of our critical care pharmacists, so she might be able to share her experience too with it. Um, I think just to clarify, so there's a difference in if it's an opioid um, over, overdose, because then we'll just want to slam. Slam. No. Not if you can. But in, in, on the inpatient setting, at least, it's exactly how Kevin um, as to not reverse the patient so quickly and have mm -hmm. that, those withdrawal symptoms immediately just to give as much as you need to see the effect of, of um, those op the patient becoming less tired and um, those effects that you want. But just how you describe it. I don't think, yeah, I don't think I highlighted this enough or at all, I guess, but one of the things about Narcan is that it will reverse the respiratory depression and sedation that is common in overdose, but it will also reverse the analgesic effect as well. So if we give too much Narcan, then that patient might experience withdrawal as a result. But that might be better than them, you know, not breathing. So, <laughs> so something to keep in mind, yes. Uh, how, what proportion of um, medications would you say, I did not ask that properly, is it a, a, do you see a lot of providers prescribing a lot of opioids? Still, like how much of what you see every day is what I can't it's okay don't <laughs> worry the question was how what do I see in my day-to-day -day type of practice in terms of opioid ordering and prescribing so my so again I just graduated so most of my experience has been in the inpatient setting while I've been a resident at Tufts so I'll I will see opioids used left and right um, but remember, these are patients who are in the hospital. They might have had a surgery, for instance, or they're in the ICU. Patients will experience pain here. That's not something that, um, that's unexpected, of course. So I'll see it pretty commonly used. However, if a patient, you know, on the outpatient side, for example, um, that might be a different story. Um, because in those instances, it, 
you have to wonder, you know, has that patient tried something else? What's the cause of their pain? You know, is the pain expected? Um, but here in the hospital, we often use it acutely for, for situations where we know the patient will be in pain. That does not mean they'll develop tolerance or physical dependence unless it's being used long, like for a longer duration. But yes, it, it does get used pretty often, but we're not super concerned, although I guess with us being new, newer providers, I think the concern is heightened for us, like we're aware about it. But again, we know that pain occurs in the hospital, and so we'll use these um, pretty frequently. Um, do you find that patients are aware of it and resistant to taking opioids? Um, I think so. I think some patients, I mean, sometimes if they can't, you know, express that they have an aversion against it, you know, we'll still give them opioids. But if patients feel like they don't want opioids, they, I found that some of them will actually express that they don't want that, and then, and so we won't order that for them. I don't know if there's anything, anything else besides that, but I, I, I would assume that's the case. Yeah. But patients who express that they don't want to use opioids, that they won't use, then we won't order them. I have like a personal story about that. So like I, last year I uh, had my wisdom teeth removed and so um, the, the, orth the uh, what's the surgeon? Oral, the oral surgeon had <laughs> asked me, um, you know, some routine questions like, oh, do you take a blood thinner medication? Uh, you know, have you taken some antibiotics in the past or something like that? And so he just says, okay, I'm giving you two prescriptions, and then he sent me out the door. I mean, he was a very nice guy. Um, he didn't even tell me what the medications were, but I already knew it was going to be a pain medication and an antibiotic. Um, so I got amoxicillin, and then I got uh, Vicodin. I was pretty afraid of using the Vicodin just because, I don't know, I just have an aversion of, of using drugs in general, even though I'm a pharmacist. <laughs> uh, but I also knew, like, I would use it only if I really need it, and I ended up only really needing like um, a leave to help and then I maybe tried a half a tablet and I felt like nauseated after that. Um, but although I think that nausea might have come from the anesthetic as well. So I don't know, maybe, so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little averse to it. I think other people are pretty averse to it. So, and that's a very valid concern. What do you do with the rest of it? Oh, I, so it's funny because, like, because I, I, had this, I had this surgery at home in New York before I came for residency. And my, I don't know, uh, after, you know, my swelling resolved, you know, I wasn't in pain anymore, uh, we put it back into, like, our medicine cabinet. And then when I was about to leave, I told my parents, like, hey, I, I'll just take this back to Boston, not because like I needed it, but because I didn't want it sitting in their house. Um, and I guess that's another like issue to think about, you know, if um, we don't want these like unused medications that have pretty high like potential for abuse or diversion like in our homes. And so I was a little afraid that either uh, A, somebody who like finds out that we have this at home might come and steal it because we never throw medications away <laughs> at, at my parents' house. Um, and so I just thought it was safer if I just like kept it in my own hands. I I did want to actually go to like a police department and get rid of it, but I haven't done that yet. I should. Yeah. Like shit. So those are medications that. Um, yeah, if I can't go to a police department, it might those might be just because it's such a high risk. Most medications, the authorities will say, 
probably don't want to flush unless it's really high, like high risk to keep them at home. Why can't you flush them? So it's more environmental than anything. We don't want like, like some, some like I don't know if there's like antibiotics in in our in our like public health system, like our public water system. You know, it's more environmental than anything else. Um, same thing goes with like throwing medications out in the trash. We don't want them to get into the wrong hands if people like rummage through it. Yeah. Um, so when, when I work at National, they have like a disposal thing for you to like, like uh, dispose. Is that for the public? Yeah, for patients. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. So. So yeah, those those areas where you can just go and drop things off are really helpful. It's unfortunate that many pharmacies actually don't have those take back programs readily available. They might have like take back days, but then. If you just bring some medications in and it's like, I don't want these anymore, they can't take them. They tell you, like, you have to buy this thing and mail it back or go to your police department and return it. So it can sometimes be a little burden. Is incinerated? <laughs> and throw some more chemicals. In no, in Vermont, you, the take back program is they put in the incinerator. Oh, really? Yeah. It's interesting. With all the patient data, too. Well, uh, yeah, I think we, I mean, that makes sense, too. So. All right. Anything else? All right, so I think we've gone a little bit over time, but I hope that was a pretty thorough uh, experience about opioids. Um, and then, like I said, next week, Diane will talk about the non-opioids. So um, stay tuned for that. So I guess now will be a time for a break, and then Paul will continue teaching.